what you end up getting is affordable housing units that are actually healthier, more energy efficient, has more up-to-date technology in terms of heating and cooling than you're getting on the market side. And so that's an exciting place to be, I think, both for affordable housing and for the environmental piece. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are in the world. This is the Climate 21 podcast, the number one podcast showcasing best practices in climate emissions reductions. And I'm your host, Global Vice President for SAP, Tom Raftery. Climate 21 is the name of an initiative by SAP to allow our customers calculate, report, and reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. In this Climate 21 podcast, I will showcase best practices and thought leadership by SAP, by our customers, by our partners, and by our competitors, if they're game, in climate emissions reductions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast in your podcast app of choice to be sure you don't miss any episodes. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Climate 21 podcast. My name is Tom Raftery with SAP, and with me on the show today, I have my special guest, Ryan. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me, Tom. My name is Ryan Cassidy. I'm the Director of Construction and Sustainability for Risborough Community Partnership. We are a, a nonprofit housing developer and social service provider in Brooklyn, New York. We've been around for over 40 years, and we've been in that time providing social services and really using housing as like a foundational service to uh, help people thrive in their communities. Okay. And this is the Climate 21 podcast, Ryan. What has housing got to do with climate? Yeah. So in uh, New York City and in a lot of major urban areas, uh, multifamily housing is one of the largest producers of greenhouse gases and users of energy in the overall energy sector. So New York State, New York City has, has realized over the last probably 15 to 20 years that we can't approach the climate problem without dealing with our multifamily buildings, especially multifamily buildings. These are really dense buildings that, you know, that you see throughout cities that are between, you know, four stories and up and that provide the bulk of the housing uh, in New York City. And so that's a major component of uh, what we're doing and what we've been involved in, in in the last 20 years during our housing development. Okay, and by multifamily buildings, you're talking about the kind of apartment complexes, that kind of thing, yeah? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, and how do you fix that? How do you make sure that the energy that they use, well, how do you reduce, I guess, their their energy footprint, which is the big problem you're, you're alluding to? Yeah, so there, there's two basic types of housing stock. One is the, is the stuff that we're doing in new construction. And so... There's been a, a real revolution in, in New York State over the last 20 years with the quality of the new construction that we're building as it relates to energy. So we know we can build buildings that are vastly more efficient than even buildings we built 10 or 15 years ago. So on that side of the equation, you know, there, there's a path forward there to build more efficient buildings. But the real challenge and the challenge that most city space is that most of the buildings that are there in the city are are already built, right? So most of the uh, the land use is already happening. The energy footprint is already there. So if we only address new construction, that's only a tiny sliver of energy consumption. So the way to get to energy reduction is to really deal with existing buildings. 
And so that's where the challenge comes in because you've got occupied buildings, you have buildings that were built in the case of New York City over the range of mostly, you know, anywhere between 20 to 150, 175 years ago. And so dealing with the energy footprint of those buildings is a real challenge. And so what we've learned from new construction are kind of like the means and methods to get to uh, highly efficient buildings. And we're trying to take those lessons learned in new construction and apply them to existing uh, retrofits. The way that we've done it at Riseboro has been to use passive house construction. And passive house is a uh, type of building that's been around for quite some time in Europe and recently kind of came back to the U.S. in the last 10 years and is really all about uh, insulation and air sealing. So if you have a really well-insulated building that isn't leaky and is kind of airtight, you can drastically reduce your loads in the building and then use far less energy. And the metrics on this are are not incremental. It's not 20% savings or 30% savings. These are deeply efficient buildings. They use anywhere between 60 and 80% less energy than a standard building. So on the new construction side, like I said, where those changes have been implemented, uh, a lot of builders know how to do it now, but we're really still in the early stages of uh, learning how to do this on existing buildings. So that's where, that's where the, the biggest lever is for improvement uh, citywide. And that's where like the most learning probably needs to occur as we move forward. Okay. I can imagine, obviously, that if you're building a new house, as you said, I presume building codes have been updated and it's now required to put some of these things in place in new housing. So you get economies of scale there. And as you say, builders are, builders are coming up to speed on how to do it. How do you do it with existing stock? Yeah, well, you, you mentioned it, you raised a good point, right? So the, the building code is the biggest policy point and the biggest lever that we have in getting like mass adoption of new techniques. So New York City didn't really have much of an energy code all the way up until probably like 2015. So the, the energy codes that we're talking about are are really new um, and they're getting better all the time. And in every couple of years, there's what they call the stretch code that kind of is going deeper and deeper into uh, making new buildings be more energy efficient. So that's been great. It's really forced the market to to deal with uh, both how to construct these new buildings and the means and methods. So the question is, what do we do on existing buildings? So the the sticks and the carrots are still there that you would get uh, for new construction, right? You can have a code apply to older buildings and, and the city of New York has done that. There's now these energy... Uh, scores that you'll see on the outsides of buildings, uh, much as we did in restaurants 10 or 15 years ago where they started scoring restaurants. You now get a building energy score. So property managers and building owners don't like to have a C or a D hanging outside of their of their beautiful residential building. And, and tenants are becoming more aware of what that is and what it means. And so that's been one uh, kind of very visible policy that the city is implemented is this building scoring. What goes along with that is uh, ultimately penalties for not getting your building to an energy efficiency standard that the city wants to see. So over time, there's right now, it's just for informational purposes, but over time, there's going to be actual fines and in, in city, the city's going to start finding building owners for poorly performing buildings. And so 
that's the motivation. Right now, it's probably more on the marketing and leasing side. But over the next few years, that's going to start to hit the pockets of owners and owners don't like to spend money on those types of things. And so the idea is that it starts to drive these meaningful upgrades. Okay. And what kind of, what can you do to an older building to make it more passive? Yeah. So it remains, uh, the key components are, uh, still insulation and air sealing. So in the affordable housing space, you know, affordable housing's had a unique opportunity to be a leader in the field um, because most of our operating budgets are spent on utilities and because we can't raise rents the way a market rate developer can just simply ride the wave of the market. And, you know, an apartment that 10 years ago cost $2,000 now costs $4,000 and they can just, you know, rake it in and affordable housing. We can't do that. So we have constrained incomes. So it makes our operating expenses even more critical. And when you look at our operating expenses, you know, anywhere between 30 and 50% of our operating budget is for utilities. So it, it's spurred affordable housing developers to get into this space over the last, you know, five to seven years in a way that uh, market rate providers have not. So what have we learned? We've learned that air sealing and insulation are the keys to load reduction in, in reducing energy use in a building. And the best way to do that with occupied buildings, because you're not, you know, you're not emptying buildings out and being able to go in and, and do these massive renovations is to do it from the outside. So that's led to a lot of interesting uh, means and methods with contractors and with designers. It gives a really great opportunity to, to change the look of these buildings in, in, in a meaningful way. One of the problems with affordable housing is that you could essentially walk around the city and point to the buildings that are affordable housing, right? We all, we all know what the NYCHA buildings look like. We know what Mitchell Lama buildings look like. And so this is an opportunity to not only uh, change their energy profile, but to really change them from an aesthetic point of view that can be really meaningful to people as well. So recladding buildings with a really dense insulation is the best way to lower the loads and the best way to get to these deep energy retrofit savings. The second piece is broadly called electrification. And what that means is that we're moving off of fossil fuels to heat buildings and to heat hot water, and we're moving to systems that are electrical. And in almost all cases, that means an air source heat pump, which is like a you know condenser on your rooftop and then in your unit, you get like a wall hung unit or a ducted system. So we, we kind of know how to do that. And so those renovations, those two pieces, you know, insulation, air sampling, and then electrification are the pathway. And that's something we've learned over the last few years uh, that maybe we didn't know five to seven years ago. And now I think is pretty clear in the market of what we need to do to get there. And what kind of costs does that entail for a building? Yeah. So in affordable housing, we have like these very clear milestones of when we refinance buildings and when we are kind of taking on major capital improvements. It's a little different in market rate buildings, but in both cases, we know the cost now of what these renovations are, and they are greater than what is, uh, what's typically done in affordable housing. It's at year 15, where we typically have like a tax credit investor that is exiting the project and we have an opportunity to refinance and do some major capital improvements. So at that year 15, we would typically spend, you know, somewhere between like 40 and $60,000 per unit on just general 
capital improvements. The types of renovations we're talking about now are far above that level. We're talking anywhere between $125,000 and $150,000 per unit. So it's a, it's a major change. And I think the way to look at it isn't maybe as much the increased cost as it is a realignment of capital. And so when I say that, what I mean is that there's been no problem in either the affordable or the market rate sector of building new construction in these major cities. And these are cities that construction costs just explode over time. And so buildings that we built 15 years ago for $200 a square foot, we're now building for $400 a square foot. Hasn't really slowed production on the new construction side. So what that tells us is that the capital is actually there, right? What we don't have is an alignment of capital. We don't have this idea that renovations are important and that banks and lenders are lining up to uh, execute projects like this. So I think there's now a realization that we can't solve our housing problem and our energy problem with new construction. We have to do more on the renovation side. And so we need everybody, you know, appraisers, lenders, contractors to understand that this is really where the new market lies, the new opportunities lie, and to just align the capital behind that. So all the resources that we get in new construction, we need to start, you know, getting some of those resources into renovation budgets. And so I think we know we've learned the means and methods over time. We've gotten the uh, public policy as aligned behind, you know, delivering the carrots and the sticks to drive people towards this. And now we just need banks and lenders to understand that this is how we get there, how we get to a, a lower carbon future and lower energy efficient future and make sure that we can align that capital and execute these new types of projects. Okay. And you said, if I understood correctly, you said that the tenants in these, the tenants in these houses, their utility bills can make up 50% of their costs. How has that changed when these houses become more passive? Yeah, so the, the 50% number is kind of our, as the owner, what we pay on operating costs. So most of our operating costs are on utilities. But there is an impact here for tenants. And we know that, you know, whether it's Con Ed or some other utility provider, the rates are starting to skyrocket as we move both away from natural gas and as, you know, market conditions change. So lowering loads benefits owners, but it also benefits tenants. In New York City, we're all very familiar with the window AC that you, you put into your window. It's got these goofy flaps that never work. And the whole thing is like, you're just cranking away on that uh, air conditioner, trying to keep your apartment at like a livable temperature. Mm. So when you air seal and you insulate a building, most of those problems are being solved from kind of what we would call the outside. So we're getting better thermal performance of our walls. We're getting tighter wall assemblies. And then we've got an air source heat pump that's our electrification that is up on a wall or, or through a sleeve that's well sealed. And it's operating highly efficiently and you know, far above what a window AC is gonna do. So these renovations are also gonna produce pretty dramatic savings for tenants in terms of cooling. You know, of course, if you're doing lighting uh, replacements as well, there's a big opportunity for LED lighting replacements. So the overall benefit to the tenants on the financial side is also is also there. I would add too that one of the things that in the way that we really look at passive house building at Riseboro is it's really a quality building metric as well. When you're air sealing something, you're stopping the flow of air. So that means 
you're stopping not only air, but, you know, pests, smells, moisture through assemblies that causes mold. So all these other things that are really quality building metrics and have a big impact on tenants' lives, whether it's, you know, reducing pests, reducing the smells in the apartment, providing consistent temperatures, reducing moisture and mold throughout wall assemblies. So all those things are really important to tenants and uh, ultimately have some big impacts, especially on indoor air quality. And that's an area that I think we're, we're looking to expand at Riseboro and, and we're look, starting to you know, study indoor air qualities and uh, how that relates to these more energy efficient buildings. Interesting. I, just, I read a study a week or two back showing that indoor air quality can be hugely affected as well by having gas cookers. Are you taking that into account and switching out gas cookers for electric cooking? Yeah, we are. And that's part of the uh, electrification. We're, we're both removing the fossil fuels to heat water uh, for hot water and for building heat, but also removing the, the gas appliances from apartments and moving to electric stoves. And, you know, we've undertaken a study with MIT over the last two years to study air quality inside existing apartments. And when you turn on a gas stove appliance in an apartment, your air quality is drastically affected. And, and these are air qualities that aren't just bad for indoor air quality, but they're actually in some cases exceeding the air quality for outdoor. So, you know, you're talking about air quality that that is worse than standing next to a, a major highway in terms of like particulate matter. So it's a real problem. And, and we know that especially in affordable housing, um, low income communities are more at risk, both from an external environmental perspective and now what we're learning is that these gas stoves are also huge uh, sources of pollution within an apartment. So if we can get rid of the gas appliance and also introduce uh, real ventilation into apartments, those are the two pathways to improve indoor air quality. And, and you couple that along with uh, decreased pests and decreased moisture intrusion. And you've got a, an apartment that now can be really healthy to be in instead of these, uh, the apartments that we currently see with uh, existing housing stock. And are you putting in the likes of double glazing on windows as well? Because I can imagine that would help not just with the thermal insulation, but it would also help with noise insulation. Yeah, that's right. So this kind of outside in approach is air sailing insulation and the, in the windows. And so we kind of like redo the entire envelope so that, uh, yeah, the, the performance of the windows is double, almost always going to be double glazing. In many cases, depending on, you know, the fenestration of the overall building, it's, it could be triple glaze. And so, yeah, that, that helps with both thermal performance. And as you mentioned, in cities, especially noise and insulation helps with noise too. So if you're recliding your building with a new window, anywhere between four and six inches of insulation, your apartment's going to be a whole lot quieter uh, than when you started from the outside. Fantastic. So people in low income housing are getting lower energy bills. They're getting lower noise pollution inside the building. They're getting fewer pests, higher air quality. It, it seems like a, and, you know, re reducing the carbon footprint of these buildings as well. It seems like a complete win, win, win. Yeah. And it's been really encouraging to see the affordable housing industry, like I said before, really be first in line for this because of the financial makeup of the buildings where we're not collecting, you know, we've never been able to collect more rent. And the cost of energy is going up. And so we've been incentivized to take kind of more radical action in the market. And what you end up getting is affordable housing units 
that are actually healthier, more energy efficient, has more up-to-date technology in terms of heating and cooling than you're getting on the market side. And so that's an exciting place to be, I think, both for affordable housing and for the environmental piece. How can we take those learnings and move them into the rest of the housing market? Yeah, it's going to be difficult. I mean, there's certainly one of the advantages that affordable housing has is that, as I said before, you can, the existing architecture of affordable housing isn't really anything that that you would need to preserve. So recladding a building is, is a really great aesthetic option. You know, as you get into other building typologies, whether they're historic or steel and glass towers and things like that, or you get into some deeper challenges, but still a huge component and supply uh, of existing housing units are these like four to 12 story mass apartment buildings. And all of those, all the learnings that we're getting from these affordable housing buildings can be transferred over to these types of buildings. So it's a good opportunity for a pretty wide swath of market rate buildings. And then I think it's going to come down to really getting one capital aligned for, you know, these bigger capital budgets. And then ultimately the market doesn't move unless there's a, a pretty good stick to compel them to. And so that's where all of these uh, local laws come in that are both measuring your building energy use, grading your building, and then subsequently finding buildings for performance. And so those, the good news is, is all those things are in place. They're all fairly new. And so over the next five to 20 years, as building owners start to feel some of the pain, that's when we expect some of those market changes to take place. And how do we move it outside of just New York? Yeah, that's a great question. So New York, as I said earlier, really didn't have any kind of energy policy even 10 years ago, you know, and we were way behind. We had building code. There wasn't a major overhaul of the building code uh, until 2010. And so we were working on the 1968 building code. So it's a, it's a pathway for municipalities to take that really didn't exist. And so... A lot of work went in from NYSERDA, who's New York State Energy Research and Development Authority that really helped build the case with data and with case studies that this was feasible. And we had some good political leadership, both in New York City to get this done, because, you know, as New York City goes with some of these housing policies, the rest of the state can follow. And so it's it's been transformed over the past five to 10 years. And so if there's people out there that, you know, are in other states or, or places that don't have good energy codes or not existing energy codes, this is potentially a roadmap for those places to follow these types of systems. And there's been a lot of political willpower there on the building side and then also on the utility side to switch off of fossil fuels, whether it's, you know, removing natural gas or adding solar, adding winds, all these things that are grabbing headlines are all ways to replace some of the uh, the natural gas usage, because ultimately, you know, we, we're doing what we have to do on the end use. But if we're switching all these buildings from natural gas to electricity, of course, we need new sources of electricity. So the state's been working pretty hard to, to work both sides of that equation. Superb, superb. Ryan, we're coming towards the end of the podcast now. Is there any question I didn't ask that you wish I did or any aspect of this we haven't mentioned that you think it's important for people to be aware of? Yeah, well, we talked about the health of the tenants in our buildings. It's most interesting to us at Rise Growth how we can kind of blend this housing approach, kind of our housing plus model of, of providing 
a good affordable housing to people so that they can thrive in their communities and, and do all these other things that they want to do because people don't want to think about, you know, their energy consumption of their house doesn't need to be like a, a main point of their life. So when we do that, you know, in thinking about tenant health, we want to get more creative around uh, financing models. And that might mean bringing in, if we're getting healthier buildings and people are having less asthma attacks or going to emergency rooms less for breathing issues or leading healthier lives because of their buildings, that's something we want to try to translate into capital opportunities. So whether that's, you know, getting Medicare involved with helping to finance buildings like this, whether it's getting insurance companies to realize that these buildings are, are more efficient and resilient. So we didn't, we didn't talk about that. And that's kind of like in cases of power outages or other issues, people can shelter in place because the buildings are so efficient. They retain so much of their, their heat in the winter and they're cool in the summer. And so kind of being more creative around financing methods and bringing more financial tools to bear on these types of projects than just the typical uh, housing finance. So, you know, looking towards insurance companies and healthcare industry to recognize the benefits of energy efficient housing and, and these benefits go beyond energy. And so I think that's what's interesting is how to do that in the future and, and take, take some of these uh, advantages and uh, try to build out a better capital base to finance these types of projects. Cool, cool, cool. Really interesting. Ryan, that's been fascinating. Thanks a million for coming on the podcast today. If, if people want to know more about yourself, Ryan Cassidy, or about Riseboro, or any of the things we talked about on the podcast today, where would you have me direct them? Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, you can go to uh, riseboro.org. It's R-I-S-E-B-O-R-O.org and uh, see what we do. It's, it's much more than housing, but like I said, it's sort of a housing plus model. And I'm happy to uh, join you today. And I hope for more uh, really great outcomes, both in New York and then beyond New York, as we push these deep energy retrofits. Fantastic. Ryan, thanks a million for coming on the podcast today. All right. Thanks for having me, Tom. Okay, we've come to the end of the show. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you'd like to know more about Climate 21, feel free to drop me an email to tom.raftery at sap.com or connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. If you liked the show, please don't forget to subscribe to it in your podcast application of choice to get new episodes as soon as they're published. Also, please don't forget to rate and review the podcast. It really does help new people to find the show. Thanks. Catch you all next time.